My friends, would you turn to Isaiah chapter 40? Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to continue on in our sermon series about Jesus, who is our only hope, by looking at various passages in the book of Isaiah. There's a little known story that maybe some of you aren't familiar with. And it's a personal one. Back in 2005, Laura and I were, uh, I was working at Peace Community Church as the the youth pastor. And after a whole lot of mess back in 2001, the church had to kind of re-decide, you know, what is God calling us to be about? There was, uh, at one time, there, there was kind of this mantra that they wanted to be the Willow Creek of the South. They wanted to be this huge mega church known for its glitzy, glam, slick preaching, amazing, fine-tuned kind of orchestration of worship. They, just, they were planning and building this monstrosity of a building on Lairway, uh, just south of where the, the Hickory Creek Middle School is. It was going to be this monstrous, beautiful thing. But it all fell apart with the sin of humanity. Affairs. That's not the story, though. After a while, the church had to kind of decide, who are we going to be? What are we going to be about? And the elders approached uh, Laura and I and said, would you be interested in... um, planting a church, we sense that God is calling us to be about starting new churches. After all, 80% of Will County is not found in a church on any given weekend. 80%. Think about that here in Manhattan. 80% of Manhattan is not found in a church on any given weekend. Should that not just give us a burden for the lost? As we drive up and down these streets and you notice that there's not much movement... You go, man, Lord, would you just open their eyes? Anyway, that's not the story. The story was Laura and I said, yeah. And it took some prayer. It took some conversation. It took a little bit of battling. Um, But we finally came to the place where it's like, yeah, we believe that God is calling us to plant a church. So we went and we, we did some, signed up to do some, some church plant training. And as we were coming up to that date, we experienced pain. Not just in the training. Some of that was just painful. But we experienced pain. We experienced loss through miscarriage. And I'll tell you, miscarriage sucks. The anticipation of life and the the dreams that you start building up in those moments of I can't wait. What are we going to name him or her? I can't wait till we see this little... And then there's the loss of life. And it made us in those moments question, should we be doing this? Should we be planting this church? Is this the kind of attack that we are going to be experiencing from Satan as we seek to see God's fame and name made known of, you know, in the Lincoln Way area. But God was gracious and he blessed us with something. 
And that something was Isaac. Another beautiful gift. So following this, this bad news came some great news. Some healing balm for our soul. So after every bit of bad news, we can always use some good news, right? After you hear that, you know, maybe your condo is on fire, you're, you're always hoping that that bad news is followed up by, don't worry, all states got it, or State Farm has it, or somebody's got you covered. Or you, you hear that you're sick, and that's bad news. Maybe it's the big C word, There's, it's cancer. Or maybe it's something else. But then you hear very quickly that, may, hey, wait, there's good news. Good news is coming. There's a cure. And it comes just in the nick of time. Good thing that you caught it now. Bad news has a way of stinging. It bites. But it sure does help, doesn't it? When it's, it's, you get a good dose of good news that follows that bad news. So this morning, we are going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And we are going to see the beauty of Bad news followed by good news. So would you stand and we are going to be reading all the way through verse 11. Comfort. Comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and let and cry to her. That her welfare, warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. For the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God, behold, the God, Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this passage that, that we're looking at starts off in these first few verses with the, kind of this emphatic comfort. 
Comfort my people, says my, your Lord, your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Man, this, this sounds like great news. These are the kind of, kind of the words that if you would ever go into the family Christian store, is that still a thing anymore? It's closed down, whatever. Some, you probably find it in Kentucky somewhere, or Indiana, or maybe probably upper Wisconsin, right? Uh, you find a family Christian store, Christian bookstore kind of thing, and you'd see this kind of stuff written on a beautiful plaque or on a coffee cup, and it's just kind of those warming kind of things. But what you miss by seeing these warm, fuzzy kind of things is how stunning this really is is how great of good news this really is because it is the dose of massive good news that Judah was really needing following some terribly bad news. It's not just the good news that comes after the bad news for people who had who were living some 2700 years ago. It is also good this is good news for you and me. It's personal good news. So I have one goal this morning. My one goal for you today is to show you how Isaiah's news is good news for you. But before we look to that good news, I'd like to show you the bad news that made Isaiah 40 such good news. Isaiah 40 kind of marks a, a, a dramatic break in the book of Isaiah. In fact, many scholars wonder whether or not there were two authors to this book. Because there is such a, a hard break between Isaiah 1 through 39 and Isaiah 40 to the end of the book that it, it almost feels like there's two different messages and two different stories going on here. So they, they wonder, are there two, two Isaiahs? No, I believe that there's one who wrote this book. But chapter 39 did end with some pretty bad, some brutal bad news that ultimately Judah would be carried off into exile to Babylon. That's some bad news. Isaiah said to Hezekiah at the end of chapter 39, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. It's kind of a, sounds like a parent kind of thing. Listen, your day. Your days are numbered, kid. The days are coming when all that is in your house. Donna, you, you do that? Do you use those kind of words? You do? No? Uh, <laughs> the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. In other words, everything that you made, all your bank account, everything that you think that you've acquired, even your parents' stuff, it's going to be carried off to a foreign land. Nothing shall be left, said the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, things are going to be taken care of there in such a way that your family line will end right there. There is no hope for you. 
Your story is done. You have no resources. You have no line to continue it on. This is the bad news. So Isaiah is looking into the future and he saw the day when Jerusalem was going to be totally destroyed, ransacked, cleaned out. And this happened a hundred years later in 586 BC. The Babylonian army besieged Jerusalem, destroyed it. It was devastating. And Jeremiah tells us that the Babylonian king's bodyguard entered Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house was burned. It was destroyed. It was devastated, decimated. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. Thousands of people were taken captive and they were shipped thousands of miles away. Only the poor were left behind. This would have been devastating news for the people of Israel. They were supposed to be this mighty nation. They were supposed to be this blessing to the whole world. Instead, they're a hundred years from being utterly destroyed. And this news would have left them bitter and disillusioned. And you can't appreciate the good news of Isaiah chapter 40 until you see the bad news of Isaiah chapter 39. The bad news is absolutely devastating. And that's what makes Isaiah's message in chapter 50 even more interesting. So, there's always, there's always good news after the bad news. And in Isaiah 40, this, the scene does this huge shift. Isaiah is now looking farther into the future. So, at first he was looking 100 years down the road and just saying, man, this is going to really suck for you. This is going to be painful. You're going to be, uh, your city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be decimated. Your, your family line is going to come to an end. But Isaiah looks even further down the road and he's picturing a day over 100 years into the future from when they went into exile. And chapter 40 is spoken to the captives who are thousands of miles away from their home, which has been utterly destroyed. And Isaiah comes with some very good news after the bad news. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Hey, this is how I want you to speak to them. Speak to them tenderly. Cry to her. And what are you going to cry to her? You are going to say that... Your warfare has come to an end. Your iniquity, your sin has been pardoned. And you are receiving back from the Lord double. You who sinned greatly, God is going to bless you in a double kind of way. So Israel has rejected God. But the beautiful thing is that God has not rejected them. That's the good news of the gospel. One of the commentators says this, like tiny children, they have stumbled in in the uncertain paths of the world and will be bruised by their fall. But they have a God rushing to pick them up in his arms. Their sins, my friends, our sins are not the final word. 
God has some words of comfort for us today. God doesn't just send, in this, this section here, God doesn't just send good news once. He sends three different messengers to send good news to the people of Israel. And also, he's sending three messengers to send good news to us. That, that's what's going on. He, he, he tells them, speak tenderly, to woo us, not to hammer us. And God is determined to get this good news through us in a repetitive kind of way with tenderness by how he is addressing us. So let's look at these three messengers quickly and see the good news that is following the bad news. Here's the first messenger. A king is coming to restore and reveal. Verses 3 and 5, just 3 to 5, use this, this strong language that sets the stage for the king. Now, as a kid, I, I grew up in, in a culture where they did some kind of some odd things. Every second weekend in May, the whole city would be uh, transformed. It was called tulip time. And it was this, uh, some of you would go and you go, this is really weird. They're wearing wooden shoes and everybody is wearing these Dutch uh, costumes and it's really kind of strange. But there was one thing, so they would have parades on Thursday night, on Friday in the morning and in the evening, and then they'd also have something on Saturday. It was a big ordeal. And every year in the high schools, there would be this, it was kind of like a Miss America, except it was a Miss, Miss, uh, Miss Pella. And they would have this competition where... Um, these young ladies would use all their talents and all their gifts and try to, try to convince the judge that they should be the tulip queen. Um, and yeah, it, it's wicked, you know. <laughs> uh, you see how parents get all mean and nasty. Huh. My daughter deserves to be the... Anyway, um, once a tulip queen, and just so you know, there was a competition between the public school kids and the private school, Christian school kids about who, who's, whose daughter should be. And there's, there was always a devastation in the private school world when the public school girl... Whole another story. But um, once one was elected, she would be one of the leading persons that would lead off the parade. But they didn't just lead off. Donna? Something would happen. Something would happen to the children. Yeah, do you recognize those people? Yeah, yeah. Something would happen, not just to the kids, but they would do something else. Here's the next one. They would bring out buckets of water and everybody would be equipped either with buckets of water or they would come out with brooms. Why? Because the queen was coming. And what did they have to do for the queen? They had to scrub, literally scrub the streets of Pella. And so part of the parade, people would go through and they, they would keep on scrubbing the, the streets, scrubbing the streets. And they were preparing the way for the queen. And so it start, starts off with the burgomeister. The burgomeister would announce, hey, the queen is coming. Bring out all the, the people. Let's scrub the streets. And then he'd come through and he would inspect all the street, the streets in front, especially up in front, in front of the tulip tower. And uh, making sure that it was clean enough. And he'd Kind of, you know, put on his song and dance and make sure that, you know, here's a little dirty spot. Somebody come and clean this spot. And then he, after he noticed that everything was clean, he would announce, 
that the queen can come. And sure enough, the queen would come with all of the, her court. Silly tradition. But get a little picture of what's going on in verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's what verse 3 is, is talking about. We, we, this God, it's this announcing of a king. When Jesus is born, a king came into the earth, and not just any king. There was nobody like this king. And he is a long-awaited king who is unlike any other king that you have ever, ever seen. He's a king who reigns, but he is also a king who serves. And look at the two things. There's two things that this king does. First of all, he launches major renovation plans. Major. Every valley, it says in verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall be made level and the rough places plain. If you know anything about Jerusalem, you will know that the eastern approach to Jerusalem covers some very, very rough terrain. And Isaiah is saying that this king is going to change all of that. But Isaiah is not talking about topographical kind of things. He's not talking about the highs and the lows of the physical land. This king will lower and level and smooth things out. And I love how Ray Ortland puts it. He says this. He is talking about depression being relieved. Pride being flattened. He's talking about troubled personalities becoming placid. In other words, easy to deal with. And difficult people becoming easy to get along with. That is what this king is going to come and do. I know that we don't have any difficult people here in this congregation, right? We don't have any depressed. We're all really, you know, we put our good Sunday face on. But this, if you're going to be honest with yourself, this is what Jesus is going to come to do for you. I mean, those other people. He is going to come and fix things and make things the way that they were supposed to be. And if you read the Gospels, you see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. And this is, honestly, friends, this is what the church is called to do. Jesus is always meeting sick people. And what does he do? He doesn't say, sucks to be you, man. He makes them well. He meets sinners and he forgives them. He meets outcasts and what does he do? He doesn't like build a shelter over there. No, he invites them into community to the point where Jesus had a label for himself. He was known as the friend of sinners. He meets people who are excluded by the religious of the day. And Jesus says, listen, those people are closer to the kingdom than the so-called good guys. And Jesus is still doing this today. He is still doing this. He is still welcoming sinners. He's still welcoming rebels. He's still changing lives. He is still embracing the excluded people. And this, my friends, is why we have been praying. I have been praying this prayer. Lord, we pray for a greater love for the lost. 
for a deeper compassion for the broken, a stronger faith in your saving power, bolder witness to your presence, believing that the kingdom is advancing what? One person at a time. But that's not all that this king does. The second thing is he also shows us God's glory. See that in verse 5? And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this doesn't sound like much of a big deal. It's kind of like, uh, glory, you hear that? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill to all. It's kind of this Christmassy kind of language or this kind of this Christian kind of language. Let's put it into another context. If, if you are a true Bears fan, you know that today's game against Green Bay is important, right? Mm-hmm. Why? One word. Glory. Glory. If you're a Bears fan, you want the Bears to get the glory because you are hunger, hungry for glory, right? You want their name and their fame to be elevated. But if you're a Green Bay fan, fan and I don't know why, you want the Packers to get the glory, you, right? Why is this? It is because we are all, friends, we are all hungry for glory. Paul David Tripp wrote, it's really It really is a struggle of struggles. It's what we are made for. It's what we crave. It's what we we manage to mess up in some way almost every day. And what's the struggle? The struggle is for glory. And I love how he says this. Human beings are glory junkies. We're wired to seek out glory, fame, our name, our renown, to be elevated. Trip goes on to say this. There's a quest inside of us to be amazed, to wonder, to have something that is so great and so awesome and so compelling that we want to live for it. We want to live for it, that we are willing to make sacrifices for it. It will be the thing that will get us up in the morning. That is all of humanity. To live for something. And if we're not, I wrote this out as a quote earlier. If we are not captured by God's glory, his fame, his name, his renown, then we are going to, I, I tell you, we are going to be captured by some other lesser glory. But when Jesus came, he revealed God's glory to us. John John 1 said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the Son, only Son Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. Not just the glory that Moses saw. Not just the glory that the shepherds saw on that, that, that night. Not not just the glory that the disciples saw when they saw him transfigured upon the mountain. No, but this is the glory of God who is willing to die for us. And here's the great news after the bad news. God has come as a king and he has come to restore and he has come to reveal this great, amazing news of a king who has come to do all these things. But there's two other messengers. That's the first one. The second messenger says this. 
God's word will not fail. I read a quote this week as I was kind of preparing this. You know, you kind of do a search and you come up on some real wackadoodle kind of stuff. And I I came upon um, Sister Joan Sister Joan. She's a she's a uh, a nun. And as I read it the first time, I go, oh, that's kind of some good news. And then I read it, I go, hmm. She said this. It is while waiting for the coming of the reign of God, Advent after Advent, that we come to realize that it's coming, it's coming, depends on us. First I go, yeah, that felt really good and empowering. And man, if I just work harder, if I do better, it's, it's really going to depend on me. And then all of a sudden I go, that is really bad news. <laughs> That is terrible news. God's reign depends on me. His kingdom coming into fruition depends on me. Do you know my story? If that's true, we're in a lot of trouble. But Isaiah says, says pretty much the same thing in this passage. All flesh is grass and all of its beauty is like the flower in the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely people are grass. But here's the good news. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand how long? Forever. Here's the problem with us. We are unreliable. Very unreliable. And Isaiah emphasizes not only how unreliable we are, but how temporary we are. If you, I, I have this app on my phone called Flipboard, and it kind of brings you through all the kind of the news and the things. You can kind of pick your interests. And there was one of these things that showed who are the, the, the Time magazine picks of the most influential kind of people of the, of the year. And I kind of go, oh, okay, well, that really that one? Oh, this person, that person? But if you go back, and I, I did a little dig as to some of the people in the past who were the time most influential uh, people of the year, I, I don't recognize any of them. It's like, oh, oh, that's right, they were. What have they been doing recently? The reality is people fade into insignificance and obscurity. We disappear. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We have no, no real legacy. There's a few people that you look in church history or, or musical history or theatrical history and things like that. There's a few names that kind of last and linger, but even their stories aren't always true stories. They become mythological fe- uh, figures after a while. But here's the reality. You can count on God. Isaiah makes it clear that God's promises do not depend on you and me. It depends on God's word, and God's word always stands. And that's per, there's pretty much nothing that we can count on for sure in our lives. In fact, we're not even sure if tomorrow morning we're, we're going to wake up. There's really only one thing that we can count on. What God has said will come true. You can count on much in this life. But you can count on far less knowing how broken 
and unreliable and temporary we are. But we can always count on God. But here's the final messenger. In verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, it it says, um, Get you up on a mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. It says, uh, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tender, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and lead them, lead those who are with young. What's interesting about Isaiah is that he zooms out and shows the worldwide impact of the arrival of the king. In verse 5, it says, listen, the glory of God is going to be revealed and all flesh is going to see it together for the mouth of God has spoken. Here, let me zoom out. Do you see this? And this isn't just good news for Israel. This is really good news for the whole world. Everyone needs to hear this good news. But the final messenger concludes with some really good news. It may be news, good news for the whole world, but it is also, my friends, it is good news for you. The final messenger gets very personal and not to just the the whole world. He's not just generally speaking to, to the world. He is speaking to the people of Jerusalem specifically, and he is getting personal. He doesn't want this just to be good news for the world in general. He wants it to be good news to be received personally. And that's how you need to receive this, personally. So when you hear the words of 11, verse 11, not just for the world in general, but for you, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Do you know what you are? His flock. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Do you know who that is? You. He's going to carry them in his bosom. A close, intimate spot. God could have come as a judge. Instead, this is saying that he came as a shepherd. He is powerful, but he comes not in power. He comes in humility and tenderness. He He gently makes provision for the weak. He cares for those who have particular needs. Charles Simeon said this, There is not one in his flock so weak, but he will pay the most minute attention to its necessities. So this this God of the universe who speaks and universes pop into existence, this God in the universe who, who spoke and says, I need a plan of redemption for my people because they are near and dear to me. I will give my one and only son, not just for the world, but I will give specifically to Leah. I will give to Aaron. I will give to Brent. I'll give to Weston. I'll give to Randy. I'm going to give my son to you personally. And he will care for your individual personal needs. He cares powerfully. 
He cares particularly for you. So let me tell you today, and you probably know this, there's bad news all around us. You don't have to go looking for it. It's going to come knocking on your door. Or it's already with you right now. So let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God speaks words of comfort for you. The king has come to restore, to heal, to reveal, to open your eyes and see the beauty of God. And his promises, my friends, are secure. There's nothing that is going to shake God's promises. And they're not just for the world in general. They are promises to you in particular. He tends to you. He carries you. He cares for your particular needs. So the good news after the bad news is that the king has come. And you can count on that. We're going to be at the end of this service. We're going to be breaking all Advent rules. Advent is always about anticipating, and it's not until Christmas Day or Christmas Eve that you're really supposed to be celebrating the coming king. So we're going to break the rules. We're going to sing joy to the world at the end. But I want you to make it personal. I want you to make it personal. It's not just joy to the world. Remember, you are part of the world. And this joy is for you. It's for your your husband, your wife, your friends, your children, the person you're sitting next to. It is for you. Let earth receive her king. Receive her king today. Our king who has come. So my friends, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, your king has come. Your king is reigning right now. Your king longs to restore your life. Your king wants you to see the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So as we come, this meal that is taken by faith is to nourish our soul, believing that this is true, that Christ has come, and He's coming again. So let's pray.